So I want to take this time to call Blake Berg up to the stage here really quick. And Blake, I'll get that table for you. I'll get it for you. Okay, you got it yourself. All right. Okay. I get my own table. New Year's resolution was to get in the gym. And instead, he's just bringing tables up when he comes to talk. Okay, so Blake, I want to just take a second, just as your friend. Ooh, thank you. So Blake's my friend. And I love some him. Some might say best friend. Some, some might say best friend. <laughs> some might say that. Um, for those of you who don't know Blake, I want to just give you a, a snapshot of who he is. He's really funny. He has a gift from the Lord. He loves Jesus. He loves his family. And he's a great friend. And like, I just want you to know, man, it's really, it's really amazing what God's doing in you. And there's this newness that's just on you. And I, I just pray that tonight, man, you'd have fun. And I love the things that he shows you. I'm telling you guys, get, get ready. I mean, I'm, I'm going to hype you up here. But get ready to be changed. If you receive it, there's Rama from the Lord here. So with, for, without further ado, Blake, take it away. Thank you, Gerald. Wow. Hi. Well, this time last weekend, I was in Tampa, Florida. Yeah? Why Tampa, Florida, you may ask? Right? Well, Jesus loves Tampa. And so what more reason do you need? So we were in Tampa. There's a really incredible thing about the area in Tampa that we were in is that there's wild street city chickens. And I was determined to get a picture of me with a city chicken, and I got one. Do we have that picture? Just realized I'm wearing the same shirt. <laughs> it's embarrassing for me. Yeah, so, so you can keep that picture up for a second. So this chicken is a direct descendant of the original late 1800s chickens that were brought to this community when it was first formed as the uh, cigar version of a mill town, basically. Uh, which I think is incredible. And how often do you, are there just hundreds of wild street chickens roaming? And so I was determined to get a picture, but I was a little bit terrified because chickens are all a little bit unhinged, right? You know, we all have that one relative. Everyone's like, hey, like, just remember around Cousin Jimmy, like, you got to play it cool, right? So every chicken, I think, is Cousin Jimmy. Because you don't know if the chicken's sizing you up, you know, or if the chicken's being cool. And to get a picture of me with a chicken, I've got to turn my back to the chicken, so this was, a, this was a moment of great victory, but also of great fear in my life, because I can't see the rooster anymore, and so I don't know what he's going to do. But this park was incredible, because there were, there were literally dozens of chickens in this park just hanging out. So that, that's me with an Ebor City street chicken. Has nothing to do with the rest of tonight. But it was recent, and it was fun, uh, and it's a memory I'll hold for a long time. Are you guys ready to jump in for tonight, though? All right. Uh, by show of hands, who has been lost in a hospital? A few of you. I was hoping for a lot more. All right. Everybody, raise your hand. Everybody, put your hand up. All right. Wow. Everybody, look around. Look at how many of us have been lost in a hospital. It's really incredible. This opening is going to hit home with all of you. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in hospitals, not like for me, uh, but for my family. So our, one of our twins, Jack, he has one kidney, and it's called multi-cystic dysplastic kidney. 
right? Which is a really intimidating way to just say, he's got one kidney, but really everything's cool. And so in everything being cool, though, we go to the hospital once a year for a battery of tests, and we go to all the different areas because I want to make sure that his kidney's doing good, right? And so far it is. He's just like a giant kidney now with arms and legs. So he just filters whatever we throw at him. Everything is good to go. We got a couple of pictures of, um, this was his first time at the hospital getting his kidneys checked. He looks pretty pumped about it. Uh, and then the next one, this was last year, getting his kidney checked. Uh, interestingly, after this one, when he got up, there was a little feather on the, on the bed under his back that we're not sure where it came from. It's a mystery. But he's doing great. But because of this, every year we go to the hospital, and every year it's the same thing for me. I have no idea where I'm going. Right? And the first challenge is in the parking lot. Yeah, because there's lots of lots. There's physicians' lots, there's visitor lots, there's guest lots, there's the valet lot. I have no idea which one to go in. When I finally find the right lot, there's rows upon rows upon rows of handicap spaces. Right? Can we all agree that at some point the 50th handicap spot away from the door isn't helping anybody? Because at that point you're already a quarter mile away. So we finally park, which is it's the first hurdle. And if we accomplish parking, that means we've now proved ourselves worthy for the gauntlet of hallways. So we go into the hospital, we go to the front desk where you check in and we say what we're here for, where we need to go, and then they give us directions. And the directions usually go something like this. What you're going to want to do is go down the hallway, head down the next hallway. When you get to the third hallway on the left, you're going to want to go right. Keep going down that hallway to elevator B up to the third floor. When you get off on the third floor, you're going to look for elevator D because elevator B doesn't go to the fifth floor, right? And elevator D doesn't go down to the first floor. So you take elevator B to the third floor, get off, look for signs for elevator D, take elevator D to the fifth floor. When you get off on the fifth floor, you're going to want to go north. (laughs) Go north, go left, go left, go left, go left, go left, go left. Go all the way down to the end of the hall. If you get to x-ray, you've gone too far. (laughs) And I still have enough fear of man in me and need for approval that I I don't tell them that I have no idea what they're talking about. (laughs) And so I just say, great. So we take off. Uh, At some point, we go down that one hallway where there's somebody in a hospital bed in the hallway. But nobody else is around. (laughs) And then I don't know what to do. Because I, I... does anyone, like, does anyone know you're out here? <laughs> Should I, am I supposed to be here? Now, I don't know if I'm supposed to be in that hallway. Every nurse's station looks the same. At some point, you're going to go through a doorway that's not marked, which is terrifying. Right? There's nothing that lowers my confidence than opening a door in a hospital that's not marked with anything. Because you have no idea what you're going to find on the other side of that door. Uh, we've lost half of our party along the way. It's like a modern-day Oregon Trail. (laughs) But somehow we find our way. It feels like Jesus. Suddenly we appear in the room. Yeah? The thing is, when we get there, it's not like we're having cake and ice cream. There's probably going to be needles. Someone's going to be poking you. Right? Strangers might be touching me. The, The journey's hard. The destination is not that great. Can anybody relate to that with their spiritual lives? 
And I do it more than I would want to. You know, go left, go left, go left, go left. Thinking, what am I doing? Where am I going? There's that one random guy in the bed. I don't know why I'm passing him. All of a sudden, I feel like I'm somewhere I'm not supposed to be anymore. And then I get to the destination. And I think, why am I even here? Because this isn't even that great. I was confused on the way there. And now that I'm here, I can't really celebrate it. Because I don't see any value in it. So tonight, we're going to look at that. We're going to look at our journey. We're going to look at our destination. Because the journey that the Lord has us on is a straight path. And the destination he has for us is the greatest destination we'll ever know. So we're going to go back to some old stories so that we can learn. So here's the story so far. All right, God frees his people from Egypt. He frees his people from Pharaoh. And he does it through Moses. Right, Moses is this guy. He feels ill-equipped. He feels unprepared. And so the, to boost his confidence, the Lord gives him his brother and a stick. <laughs> Which isn't exactly confidence boosting, but it was enough because it worked. Right? So Moses does the let my people go thing. And Pharaoh eventually relents and his people go. And thus begins what should be a journey into the promised land of days. But here's the problem. The Lord's not just taking us to different locations. He's taking us into a purpose and into a calling for our lives. And that takes a lot more time to cultivate and to grow. And so what is about an 11-day or so journey just to the geographic location becomes a couple years. Because he's got to grow the trust of his people. He's going to grow their obedience. Right, just a couple months into the journey, he gives them the Ten Commandments, right, which they're not about controlling, they're about stewarding. Because now as people have a newfound freedom, and they need to know how to actually live that out in their lives. So these two years, it's actually a, a, it's a journey of growing in trust in the Lord, of saying, God, you are good, you are right, you are perfect. I can believe what you say, and I can believe it enough that I can actually let that influence my actions. Right, and I can step out on that, right? And that's obedience. And obedience can grow. So now we're a couple years in of this journey, and it's going terribly. And there's grumbling, there's complaining, there's the whole golden calf thing. Right? None of it's good. So God leads his people right up though to the edge of the promised land because he's still faithful to do that. And this is the land that God first promised to Abraham, so long ago that it was before Abraham was Abraham when he was just Abram. And this is many, 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 many years ago. And God says, hey, Abram, what if you left your land, you left your people, you left your inheritance, right? If you leave all the things that are the markers of an identity, leave those things and leave them for an identity that I'm going to give you. A new land, new inheritance, new people that you'll be a blessing to many nations. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. So there's that. And Abraham, or Abram says, sure, let's do that. So now here we are. God's people are in the midst of a promise of God, and they're on the verge of the promised land. So let's pick up the story in Numbers chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses... It's always a good place to start. Send some men to explore the land of Canaan. This is the promised land, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. 
So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. Sounds like a great start, right? In Deuteronomy, however, Moses tells the story this way. Then all of you came to me and said, let us send men ahead to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route we are to take and the towns we will come to. The idea seemed good to me. So I selected 12 of you, one man from each tribe. That makes the account for numbers feel a little bit different, doesn't it? doesn't feel as much like the Lord is assigning Moses to send people into the promised land to scout it. Sounds like he's allowing Moses to do it. And being allowed to do something by the Lord is great, unless it's outside of what he's assigning you to do. And for hundreds of years, the Lord has assigned his people to go into the promised land. But he's going to allow us to try and to scurry and to scamper and to go our own way. So God allows us to do that. So let's pick back up in Numbers 13, verse 17. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land because it was the season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob toward Libo Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron where people lived. Let's go to verse 23. When they reached the valley of Eshcol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshcol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. And at the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. So let's see what happens when they come back. Let's go to Numbers 13, 26. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. And there they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, all the Ites. They live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. So we have three boys. I talked about our son, Jack, earlier. We have three boys, Oscar, Miles, and Jack, and we have a dog, Rhonda. (laughs) Sometimes the four of them are a recipe for success, right? Sometimes they're a recipe for disaster. Now, one of the things that we have because of our our younger younger boys, uh, we have those push scooters, you know, a little low to the ground. You sit on them, and you just scoot around. Looks like that. Right? That's how you scoot on a push scooter. Oh, our dog is terrified of them. Which is really funny. And our kids now, they're too old for the push scooters. We finally got rid of them, but we kept them way longer than we needed to because they didn't ride them around. 
They just sat downstairs next to our kitchen. And a lot of times our dog wouldn't know they were there. So our dog would be walking around minding its own business, and then suddenly there's a push scooter, right? And then, like, she starts to get low, you know? You kind of back up a little bit. The funniest part was when it was full-on fright, yeah, and they'd take off. Because when you're running for fear, it's not about form or efficiency. It's about putting distance between me and what I'm trying to get away from. So if you run normal, that's a no-no if something's trying to get me, right? Because look how much farther back my leg is. You run like this. Yeah? Because I'm creating distance. So it's even funnier than when animals do it, you know? Because they're longer anyway than us. So our dog's running away and her whole body's trying to tuck up under itself. Because there's a scooter that's made out of plastic. Our dog can destroy an indestructible dog toy in a matter of minutes. But the scooter strikes fear in her. And so we take advantage of that. Like you do. Because if we don't want the dog in the kitchen, guess what we put in the kitchen? You put a scooter in there. Because then the dog leaves it alone. Right? And if we're outside and we want the dog to stay on the porch and not go down into the yard, put a scooter on the stairs. We're, um, we're terrible pet owners. So 12 spies go out to the promised land. And they come back, and instead of seeing God's promise, all they see are obstacles. Right? They just say, well, the land's cool. Indeed, it's milk and honey. It's great. There's also a lot of ites that live in the land. And I don't think we can do it. So let's pick up in Numbers uh, 13, verse 30. Then Caleb, I like Caleb. Uh, at one point in the story, it says that uh, Caleb had a different spirit. And he followed the Lord, the Lord wholeheartedly. It's an important thing to follow the Lord wholeheartedly. Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, Yeah, it is a land of milk and honey. We should go and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living it. And all the people we saw there are of great size. We'll go to that one later. So they continue, right? The grumbling of the last couple of years continues. We don't know what we've done, right? We should have stayed in Egypt. The Lord only brought us here to kill us. Then Joshua and Caleb, um, who explored with the other ten, right? They interrupt everyone. Let's go to Numbers 14. All right, they made their case again. They say, hey, look, the land that we, we, uh, we pass through is exceedingly good. That means it's really good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But God's people didn't choose that. And so judgment comes down from the Lord, and the judgment is this. 
you can wander in the wilderness for 40 years. One year for every day you explored the promises of God. One year for every day of unbelief. And it's not like his people didn't have a testimony to stand on, right? Because it wasn't that long ago, the whole coming out of Egypt thing. The guy with a stick brought down the greatest superpower in the world. God splits the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army is swallowed up, destroyed. Exodus chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. This is after they've been freed from Egypt. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. They're on the edge of the promised land now, and the Lord's not their defense or strength anymore. Because what they're looking in and seeing is they're seeing obstacles. And because instead of seeing God's promise, what they see is obstacles, what God's going to do is he's going to show them what an obstacle is. Because he's going to block their way for 40 years. One year for every day they explored. And God's still a good God, right? They'd already been in the wilderness for two years, so he's giving them time served. So they're going to be in there for 38 more years. Total of 40 years. And so this is when reality starts to step in for God's people. Reality is a strong motivator for repentance, isn't it? The problem with unbelief is that unbelief is rooted in reality. It's just rooted in a reality that's separate from who God is. And as long as I'm living in a reality that's separate from the reality of God, I'm going to have a really hard time changing the way I think. Because everything that comes at me, everything that's for me, everything that's against me, I'm going to see all of those things as relative to me. And it's not going to be until I recognize the absoluteness of who God is, until I can recognize the reality of God and I see that breaking into my life. Right? When I see that breaking into my life, then I can line my life up with that reality. That's when I can start to shift unbelief into belief. And this is where God's people find themselves. Right? Consequences do that real fast. Don't let consequences be your wake-up call. So early the next morning, God's people get up. And what do they do? Well, they go up to the highest point in the hills and they say, we're ready. <laughs> we're ready to go get the promised land. Right? And the Lord, he is our strength again. He's our salvation. He's our defense. But it's too late at this point. Moses is standing back, basically going, guys, what are you doing? And so God's people are routed. All the ites come, and they beat them all the way back down the hill. That's not the way that the Lord wants it, though. You know, wandering. Maybe you get to your destination. He's our destination, by the way. And he had just freed his people from bondage. And now they've chosen bondage again. Only this time it's not the bondage with chains and walls. It's the bondage of going somewhere without actually ever getting anywhere. A lot of times we equate wandering with freedom. 
But freedom can, that, or that, sorry, that wandering is as bondage. Right? It just doesn't have walls. And so maybe the view's better. Or maybe the view makes it harder. Because now they can wander around and they can see into what the Lord wanted them to march into and take for their own. Almost everyone looked into the promised land and all they saw were obstacles. Except Joshua and Caleb. They saw God's promise. In Paul's second letter to the Thessalonian church, in uh, chapter 3, verse 5, he says, May the Lord direct your hearts into, Christ, into God's love and Christ's perseverance. We're going to hang out here for the rest of the night. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. We get to see really uh, three really important things here. All right, we get to see our journey, which is direct. We get to see our destination, which is God's love. And we get to see where the journey and the destination collide into one. And that's in Christ's perseverance. Have you guys ever said getting there is half the fun? Anyone? Getting there is half the fun? Who thinks getting there is half the fun? Who does not think getting there is half the fun? No, I don't. Tell getting there is half the fun to uh, eight, year, eight years ago me when my wife and I were taking our firstborn son on a car trip to South Georgia when he was months old. A What should have been four-hour trip took eight or nine hours. It was terrible. There were tears. Uh, we're trying to feed the baby in like a shady gas station parking lot. Uh, we feel like terrible parents. Getting there was zero of the fun. Do you know when getting there is half the fun, though? Getting there is half the fun when our journey and our destination are one and the same. And that's what we get to see in Christ's perseverance. We get to see our journey and we get to see our destination being one and the same. And our journey, what Paul says, we can put that verse back up there, it's going to be direct. Now, the Greek word uh, for direct is made out of a couple words, and what direct is saying is actually implying it's a straight path as opposed to a wandering path. The wandering path is what God's people were on going to the promised land for 40 years. Paul is using a word that specifically says it's going to be a straight path. And so the first thing we need to take away is the pathway to God's heart is Straight. straight. And straight matters. In, uh, back in Numbers, right, two people saw obstacles. Yeah? Sorry, ten people saw obstacles. Two people saw promises. Ten people came back, and they said, hey, it was great. There's, uh, there's giants. There's walls. There's cities. There's fortifications. Right? They saw a lack. We're not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not a good enough husband. Not a good enough father. I don't have the right job. I don't make enough money. I don't have the right car. My house isn't big enough. I don't live in the right neighborhood. I don't know the right things. I didn't study the right thing in college. I don't have the right friends. The enemy, 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 the enemy. This person doesn't like me. I have temptation. I have fear. I have doubt. The enemy, the enemy, the enemy, the enemy, the enemy, the enemy. 
the enemy. The enemy, the enemy, the enemy. So I've got to fill 35 minutes. <laughs> There's only so much content I can come up with. I can say the enemy a lot, though. All right, and if you can't go through obstacles, then you have to go around them. And sometimes for 40 years, you go around them. Do you guys know why the river is crooked? Oh, someone said it. Who said it? The path of least resistance. The river is crooked because the river follows the path of least resistance. And here's how that works. Imagine I'm water. And I'm coming in and I'm making a river. Right, here we go. Uh Uh-oh. It's an obstacle. So the path of his resistance goes around it. Yeah? And we're on our way being a river. Right, maybe we go around it on both sides. Hey, that's good. Because we're a river. And we're just going to flow wherever there's the least resistance. Right, and you can flow sometimes for uh, 40 years. And this is where... This is where Christ's perseverance comes in. This is where our journey and our destination become one, right? This is how we stay on the straight path. This is why getting there is half the fun, is Christ's perseverance. Because we stay on the straight path through perseverance, yeah? And perseverance starts in rest, which seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Because I think of perseverance as, well, I need trust, I guess. But really, I need resolve. I need grit. I need courage. I need stick with itness. I need to be able to keep my nose to the grindstone. I need to trust and obey. So a lot of times it looks like this. We go, well, we're going to start in trust. I believe you, God. I believe your promises are good. Your promises are true. I believe that everything you say is good, right, and perfect. And I believe that enough that I can let that influence my actions and I can step toward where you're leading me. And this is where trust becomes obedience because now I've been obedient to who God is, who I am. Then I can look back and I can say, hey, well, that was pretty good. Wasn't so bad. We're moving forward, like Jonathan was saying today, this morning. I can see my obedience growing. This is kind of where faith grows a little bit. Because now I can look back and see how, while God was worth being trusted, I now have certainty. So now I can trust God a little bit more the next time he says, trust me. And I trust that. I can step out in obedience. My certainty of who God is grows. And I have to trust him bigger. And I'm obedient bigger. And my certainty of him grows. And I trust him more, and obedience grows, and so on, and so on, and so on. And then we do this over time, and we say that this is perseverance. Yeah? Here's the thing. When we're doing this outside of rhythms of rest, this is not perseverance. This is burning out. So instead what we're doing is we're trusting God, and then we're obedient and we burn up some of ourselves in the process. And then we trust God more, and we're obedient more, and we burn up some of ourselves in the process. And we do that over time, and we're slowly burning out, or quickly burning out, 
depends. I mean, all of us have different rates that we expire. <laughs> right? Because a fire needs fuel. Yeah. Right? And if we're the fuel, we have a pretty limited supply, don't we? Yeah. This is what rest does for us. Because yeah, I can keep fire going for a while. A lot of us, we can keep fire going for a while. We're taught how to keep fire going for a while. But eventually, there's not going to be any more fuel. So rest in the Father. All right? I'm not talking about crashing into vacation. Because that's already burnout. Yeah? You guys ever like need to use your phone for something and the battery's dead? So you plug it in for five minutes just to get a couple percent so you can do something? Then it's dead again, so you plug it in for a few more minutes just so you can do something. Yeah? Trust, obey, faith, trust, obey, faith, all outside of race, uh, rest. That's what that looks like. We're just cell phones just trying to get another percent so we can keep going a little bit further and a little bit further. And it doesn't work that way. Right? But when you rest in his presence, it's there when you're leaning back into the Father that you get restocked, you get refueled. Right? You get replenished. This is where he keeps the fire burning down deep in us. And here's the thing. The fire that he will burn down in us, down in us is a fire that will consume us, but will not destroy us. When we're burning fuel that doesn't come from the Father, it's a fire that's going to destroy us. And it's evident in so many of our lives. So whatever you focus on is going to get bigger. You know, if you focus on God, God gets bigger. Focus on obstacles, obstacles get bigger. The spies said we were as grasshoppers in their eyes. Go to Numbers 13.33. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. So here's the thing, if you focus on obstacles, they get bigger, and then you're just a grasshopper. You focus on God, he gets bigger. Guess what you still are? You're still a grasshopper. Only now you get to be a grasshopper with resurrection power. Yeah? And you get to be a grasshopper that rests in the Father. You get to be a grasshopper that goes straight through obstacles rather than around them. And you get to be a grasshopper that goes through mountains. A grasshopper that goes through trees, that goes through rocks. A grasshopper that goes through doubt. A grasshopper that goes through fear, that goes through persecution. Right? Straight through them. Have you ever thought of, like, what if spiritual warfare is not about how I come out from the Father, but how I go into the Father? And that as the Father has me on a straight path directly to him, in rest and in perseverance, I'm chopping the heads off of the enemy as I go. Because when you're going around the enemy, you're avoiding them. That's the path of least resistance. But when God takes us straight and the enemy is in our way, the only way through it is through the enemy. And it destroys the enemy in the process. When I was doing a lot of mountain biking, I wanted to learn how to jump my bike because it's cool. And I I wanted to learn like a real jump, you know, like a, a legitimate bunny hop. Not where my feet are strapped to the bike, and so I jump, and then the bike just jumps with me because it's attached to me. But a legitimate pull back, get the front wheel up, push forward, bring the back up to match it. Anyway, I wanted to do it, because why not? 
And if you want to get good at something, you study and practice. It doesn't matter what it is. I want a better marriage, study and practice. I want to grow in words of knowledge, study and practice. I want to hear the Father's voice, study and practice. So I was studying and practicing. So I was looking up people that know how to do it better than I do and reading what they say. And one article, the guy had the greatest advice, and it applies directly to us tonight. He said, when you're approaching whatever you're going to jump, whatever the obstacle is in your path, he said, don't look at the obstacle. Look ahead to glory. Because if you look at the obstacle, you're going to hit it every time. And so, no, that's where the enemy is placing himself. He's placing himself in our path. But when we're looking at the Father, we're not even going to realize that we have victory. Because we're not paying attention to the enemy anymore. And that happens because we're persevering. And persevering only happens because we're resting. So here's what I want to do as we close tonight. Ben, if you can come back up. Here's the invitation. It's to rest. It's twofold. Maybe there's obstacles that you're paying attention to and you want to come put those at the altar and lay those down and put yourself on the straight path into the Father. And the other side of it is to rest. To lean back into his chest. Not to push forward, but to lean back. You know why slingshots are powerful? Because you pull them back. And the farther you pull back on a slingshot, the faster that shoots out of there. So as Ben leads us for a couple minutes, just come. Come as the Lord leads you. Leave things behind. Lean back into his chest in your seat. But we're just going to rest in him for a few minutes before we go.